You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. In America, you live in a very free society where information comes out very easily, and British society is a very secretive society, and the most secretive institution of all is the royal family. Journalist and author Andrew Morton. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Tomorrow is the big day for Britain's King Charles III. It's his coronation day, the day he officially becomes King of England. He, of course, succeeded to the throne last year when his mother, Queen Elizabeth, passed away. Now, since 1981, British journalist and author Andrew Morton has been covering the royal family. And in 1991, he wrote a book called Inside Buckingham Palace, which was billed as kind of an inside glimpse into what really goes on in the private lives of the royal family. Keeping in mind that this interview was recorded almost 32 years ago, things may have changed a little bit since then, but this is a glimpse of what things were like in the early 1990s. So here now, from 1991, Andrew Morton. What actually goes on inside Buckingham? I mean, is, is, there, is there daily business that's attended to? Or is it... Oh my goodness, yes, it's the last working palace in the world, or one of the last working palaces in the world, and a whole panoply of business goes on. The Queen never stop, really stops from the moment she wakes up to the moment she goes to bed. She has a couple of hours off, of course, for lunches and, for, and to put her feet up and watch TV. But there are, there are investitures, there are receptions for ambassadors, there are lunches for uh, the great and the good, there are um, the red boxes to attend to, there are garden parties to organise, there are garden parties to entertain at, there are banquets... Um, there are Privy Council meetings as the audience with the, the British Prime Minister every Tuesday night at 7.30 when the Prime Minister goes along from Downing Street just down the mile and gives his report on the, on the nation's business. So there's an awful lot going on inside Buckingham Palace. And in fact, several years ago, one of the, a member of the House of Lords, a chap called Lord Amory, uh, now no longer with us, he suggested opening Buckingham Palace up for a tourist attraction, which I think is a great idea. But they, the courtiers inside the red-carpeted corridors decided that there were only 80 days of the year where the, some room in the palace was not being used for some function or other because it's just never... It's, it's an endless theatre, and, it's, it's, and everywhere the Queen moves, the whole theatricals accompany her, including the corgis. <laughs> oh, gee. At, at, at some considerable expense, I would surmise. Well, it costs around about $2.8 million a year to run Buckingham Palace, and then you've got to add the staff salaries on top. They're not paid an awful lot, I'm afraid. Not as, it's not CBS dollars at, in, uh, at Buckingham Palace. It's um, the, the average wage is about $11,000 a year, but they do get a room in the palace, the best address in London, and they also get uh, all food and, and lodgings paid for. But having said that, the staff turnover these days is very high because cleaning silver in the corridors of Buckingham Palace is just the same as cleaning silver in the, in the behind the scenes at Claridge's. Mm. Yeah, that's, of course, when the silver is still put out. <laughs> for, <laughs> were there, were there <clears throat> a thousand silvers? Were there a thousand silver spoons disappeared from from the? Oh yes, they have the garden parties every year, and something like thirty thousand people, the dignitaries from around the, the the localities, come there to be entertained, to have, have a cup of tea with the Queen. In fact, the Queen Mother calls them her zoo teas because she just knows that everybody's watching her, drinking her cup of tea. But anyway, they used to have crested silver 
teaspoons. And one year, there were 7,000 guests there, and 1,000 teaspoons went missing. 1,000! <laughs> now they just have the standard sterling, ordinary uh, silver teaspoons without the crest and not quite so many go missing lots of bathroom tissue goes and on one occasion there was a country cleric a vicar i don't know a padre uh, came uh, in his cassock and hidden under his cassock he had secreted a butterfly net and because in the gardens of buckingham palace there are something like 39 acres of gardens there are 2,000 species of moths and butterflies he actually went round trying to snaffle as many in his butterfly net as he could. I mean, there's been an occasion, I'm afraid to say, where the wife of an American ambassador was actually seen stealing the uh, silver menu holder after dinner at Buckingham Palace. She was stopped by a footman uh, who asked her uh, whether she would care to put it back on the table, and she gave him a mouthful uh, that uh, somebody from the Bronx would, would have been uh, quite proud of, and she duly put it back into, into her handbag. <laughs> now, I will not really... Uh, 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 release the, na- the lady's name. I don't, don't, don't want to embarrass her, <laughs> but you do know it. <laughs> well, yes, I know. The, I know the, the whole the person concerned as well who actually uh, asked them to put it back. Now, now, now you use the term the, the term footman, which which to, to an American audience is one of these quaint little, uh, you know, very Buckingham Palace sounding terms. <laughs> what exactly is a footman? What is what does he do? What does he look well, like? Well, basically, there are degrees of being waiters. There are, they are waiters around the palace. There's footmen, there's under butlers, there's butlers, there's pages, and the, it's all varying degrees of seniority. A page is a very ancient title. They used to be called the Page of the Back Stairs. These are people who actually brought the mistresses of the king up the back stairs into the king's bedroom so that nobody could actually see them um, enjoying, enjoying themselves away, away from prying <laughs> eyes. Anyway, the pages these days are the people who are the senior servants who look after the queen, and there's something called a page's vestibule just opposite the queen's study. And when the queen wants something, she'll ring on her silver bell and the page in his uh, blue livery will walk across, take the order and give it to a footman or, or an underbutler or, or whoever or send it down to the kitchens. And the, nobody, but nobody, not even Prince Charles, nobody can see the queen without going through the queen's page. So it's a very important position. Do they have to make appointments to see each other, the royal family? Absolutely, yes. Domestic it may be. Informal, it ain't. There's no chance of Prince Charles putting his head around the door and saying, hey, Queenie, what have you got on today? <laughs> or, hey, Mum, <laughs> can I see you for five minutes? He's, his private secretary or his uh, valet must ring the Queen's page to make an appointment, and often a memo will go from Prince Charles's valet to um, the Queen's page, arranging the date and the time, and, and then they will see each other. Um, when Prince Charles used to live at the palace, he now lives at Kensington Palace, it was a little bit easier, but these days it's far more formal. And certainly it astonishes me, really, that, that the people who live at the palace, that's the Duke and Duchess of York, the Queen, Prince Philip, Prince Edward and Princess Anne, they may all be in residence one evening, and yet they will all dine separately. And so there's no such thing as a great family get-together. It's very much like little corporations, little companies, all working within one great conglomerate with the Queen as the managing director. Is that by design or has it just happened that way? Oh, I mean, these days, it's, although I say it's formal, it's, it's, it is the ultimate in relaxation compared to what it used to be in the old days. <laughs> um, Edward VIII, later Duke, the Duke of Windsor, he used to have to wear a white tie and the star garter on his, on his frock coat when he used to meet his father, George V. 
uh, and when he sat down for dinner with them, it was always white tie and tiaras for uh, Queen Mary. And, in fact, the Queen Mother often used to wear a tiara when she dined just with her husband, uh, who was the Queen's father, George VI. <laughs> it may sound strange, but that's part of the mystique, or the mystique about Buckingham Palace, the fact that people, these people live extraordinary lives behind the wrought iron gates of one, one of the most famous addresses in the world. Mm. Can you do a book about Buckingham Palace without also it being a book about the royal family? I mean, is it, are, are the two one and the same? Well, what I wanted to do was a book about how the, the, the private life, the private world of the royal family, how they live away from the stage, the world stage, because my whole purpose as a royal writer is to try and, as it were, show the royal family as actors with the makeup off, with their feet up, enjoying a, a, a cigarette and a... And a, <laughs> and a can of beer or something, or a gin and tonic in, in the case of uh, the Queen, or a, or a glass of champagne, um, away from the, the spotlight. So it's, it, I focus very much on the royal family and how they live there, but also on the, the servants' life and how, and how they cope with the, uh, the, the running this very glamorous and, and rather prestigious uh, palace. It's probably not straight out of the can, the beer... Oh, it'd be poured into a into a, a crystal goblet, really crystal, <laughs> probably dating back to Charles II. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, Prince Philip always has a beer with it, with his meal every day, English ale, as you call it. After this short break, some of the startling things that Andrew Morton found out about Buckingham Palace. Now back to my 1991 interview with Andrew Morton. How do you put together a book like this? Do, must must you have official cooperation, or, are the, or do you have surreptitious information, or, or how does it happen? Well, Bill, I've been writing about the royal family now for the best part of a decade, and during that time I've built up contacts at Buckingham Palace, at Kensington Palace, on the royal yacht. I've got to know many friends of the royal family. I've got to know people who have gone there for dinners, for, for parties. And so when I was doing the research, I just used this matrix of information and this matrix of contacts to, to, and contacted other people, and, and you just build it up by researching it. Um, so I tend to use my own sources because I happen to believe that if you write about a very rich very famous and rather influential family, it is best to try and be objective about them and independent of them rather than being sucked in to their, um, into their orbit because otherwise everything becomes rather bodlerized and it becomes uh, editorially their province as opposed to your own. But that's got to be a very powerful orbit to try to resist falling into. Oh yes, it, it is. It, even, many broadcasting organisations, particularly the BBC, will relinquish their editorial control over their material in exchange for getting cooperation from Buckingham Palace. Now, that to me, I f find is entirely wrong because for I think that for the richest family, certainly in Western Europe, the most influential family in Britain, to have that kind of editorial control over an organisation which prides itself on its independence and integrity, I think is very questionable. And I, w I much prefer to work independently and try and present an entertaining, informative and I hope accurate guide to the royal family's life, but also a guide where I know that I don't feel as a, a courtier is looking over my shoulder and saying, this is, this is old boys, uh, how you should do it, and don't write about this, do this, and, and so on. After all these years covering, uh, <coughs> do, do you still find things that surprise you? Absolutely. I've, in fact, this year I've, I've 
writing about life at Buckingham Palace and, and writing about uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales, I find the more I get to know, the less I know, and the more of the detail there is that, and, and, the, and, and the huge areas which are just um, totally unknown territory. I mean, for example, did you know, Bill, that George VI, the Queen's father, wasn't buried for 17 years? He lay interred in a corridor at Windsor Castle. That fact only came out the other day. Now, that kind of thing, I find incredible that nobody knows about this thing. Now, if the don't, people don't know that... Just think of all the other aspects of royal life they don't know. And I've, I really feel that the more I get into it, the more I get to know about it, because it really is a, a journey into the heart of darkness. In America, you live in a very free society where information comes out very easily, and, and you tend to forget that British society is a very secretive society, and the most secretive institution of, of all is the royal family, and it's penetrating that heart of darkness is, is a difficult task, but it's one which I have a great deal of enjoyment of, uh, in, in, in terms of fulfilling. How, how much of the fairy tale picture do you want to puncture? Uh, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, if we see some of the warts, uh, you know, if we see what, if we see how the sausage is made, you know, to, to mix yet another metaphor into this, <laughs> I mean, does it, does, it, does it destroy some of the image? Well, I think the the image is being changed anyway. I think the idea of the mystique and the monarchy is largely draining away because there are new people, new blood come into the royal family. They've, the royal family now is is changing quite considerably. The certainly the younger members wanted to be, want to be treated more like flesh and blood individuals, not princes on pedestals. And I see my job really as trying to explain them as individuals who live human lives in extraordinary circumstances and, and in with Buckingham Palace in an extraordinary regal setting. If it's so secure, yeah. I must ask, how does an intruder wind up next to the Queen's bedside? <laughs> you, you're referring to the, the story of Michael Fagan, mm. the chap who broke in not once but twice <laughs> into Buckingham Palace. And, and I must say, Bill, on one occasion, on the eve of President Reagan's visit to the, to the Buckingham Palace lawns, to, to where his helicopter was going to land on, on the lawns of Buckingham Palace, they didn't know the night before whether they had some kind of Day of the Jackal scenario where a lone assassin was waiting in the, in the attic of Buckingham Palace with his sniper's rifle poised on the on the uh, on the leader of the western world the second occasion he got in because he just happened to hit the roulette wheel of uh, of security the the various trembler devices weren't working the doors had just been opened the interior doors had just been opened the footman was out walking the dogs the duty policeman who always sits outside the queen's be- queen's bedroom an armed policeman. He wears carpet slippers, by the way, so he doesn't wake up the Queen as he patrols up and down the corridor. He was off duty. And Michael Fagan was incredibly fortunate to get where he did because even to get into the Queen's apartments, you've got to use a secret door in the throne room to get in in there. And at first, when I was investigating this story, I thought it was an inside job. The people at the palace feel that feel that it wasn't and I'm speaking to Michael Fagan over a number of months he just says it was just sheer luck just that and that's you know, I'm afraid if he's got to take take his word for it <laughs> it was an extraordinary story and it's one which really changed the old guard at Buckingham Palace in the old days um nannies when they used to take 
their royal charges for a walk were given a whistle and told, rather in the way of Humphrey Bogart, if you're in trouble, just whistle and, uh, and the police will come running. These days an armed bodyguard goes with them. Um, the policemen on duty there used to treat it like a, a retirement post. There was an, an occasion where policeman, a policeman was found in bed with a maid and others were paddling the goldfish ponds, somewhat wor worse for, 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 for drink. Um, these days it's very much like a fortress. There are there's a police station there, uh, duly covered up so the Queen doesn't see it when she walks her corgis. And there are armed policemen dotted around the palace. And, of course, there are lots of sentries these days are armed. They don't walk around with unloaded uh, rifles. And you can get Andrew Morton's book, Inside Buckingham Palace, by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. Did you know you can find almost 400 interviews? archived at heardeverything.com. We're now in season five of Now I've Heard Everything, and I'm really glad that you're listening. Thank you so much. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We, of course, post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thank you so much. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything. Wait till you hear this. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a real-life silent movie star. He broke into the movies a 100 years ago this summer. My 1988 conversation with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. I think my first big theatrical hero was uh, John Barrymore, and then closely followed by the whole Barrymore family, Lionel and Ethel and John Drew and all of them. They were my sort of theatrical heroes. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.